We're beginning a new series today uh, on the book of 1 Samuel. We're gonna, it's going to be a three-part series uh, on the life of Hannah. And so we're going to begin today with Hannah's prayer. I'm calling the sermon The Cry. And in order to sort of set the stage for our discussion of Hannah's life, I want to revisit a commencement speech that I heard a few years ago. Well, more than a few now. It was in 2005. And it was given by David Foster Wallace, who you might know him as a fiction writer or as kind of a local philosopher in those days. He died in 2008. But he began his address to the graduates with these words. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What in the world is water? Wallace went on to explain, The immediate point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to talk about. The truth is that most of us are oblivious to the most obvious things about our lives and about our world. It seems sometimes that the more obvious something is and the more commonplace, the more invisible. We call it the wallpaper. Right? This happens to me all the time. I tell this story when I was at New Beginnings Church of the Nazarene in Loudoun, New Hampshire. Uh, I drove into that church every day for two years. And I went to an administrative, uh, well, it's, what was it called there? Uh, the board meeting. And I came in two years after having been there. And I said to the board members, when did we get the new signs? And they said, what signs are you talking about? I said, you know, the signs that say no parking on the side of the drive leading up to the church. They said, those have have always been there. They've been here since we built the church. I said, oh, <laughs> that's what we mean by the water, right? You just tunnel vision. I didn't see anything. After listening to Wallace's discussion again this week, I was reminded of the importance of the question, how's the water? It's a reminder that we choose to pay what attention to. Do you realize that? There's more in this room for you to pay attention to than you could possibly count but you're choosing what it will be. We make that choice, and what we choose to pay attention to in our lives affects what we see, how we behave, and even how we experience what's happening in our lives. So why begin this way? Well, the people in the days of Hannah were swimming in a particular stream, and it's not a stream that many of us are swimming in now today. If we're to understand Hannah's story, we have to ask about the water in which she was swimming. And then we can appreciate how she was swimming in it. So Hannah was infertile. And infertility remains a challenge for many people in the world today. But that does not mean that we understand Hannah's situation necessarily. After I completed my chemotherapy treatments in my 20s, I was diagnosed as being infertile. My wife and I were married for 12 years without children, and for the last five years of those 12, we lived with the specter of possibly never being able to have them. So perhaps I might be tempted, or Jen might be tempted, to believe that we understand Hannah's desperation, but we don't. We're not swimming in the stream in which she was swimming. Her infertility meant something different in her time and culture than ours does in our time and our culture. And so throughout the sermon, I'll be asking you the question, how's the water? 
Hannah most likely lived between 1075 and 1050 BC. She would have been a contemporary of the Old Testament judge Samson. Hannah and Samson lived about 15 miles apart. Samson was in the tribe of Judah. Hannah lived just north of him, 15 miles north of him in the tribe of Ephraim, Benjamin, right on the, on the edge there. Now, although Hannah was married to a man from the tribe of Ephraim, Elkanah himself was most likely a Levite. All this is to say that Hannah was an Israelite during the period of the judges. She was a member of a Levitical family. She lived in the tribe of Ephraim, and she lived during the time in which the judge in Israel was Samson. And if you know anything about Samson's story, you know that morally that was not a good time. The book of Judges tells us that this period was a difficult one in the history of Israel. It was full of rebellion against God. The repeated phrase describing this period in the book of Judges can be found all over the book, but Judges 21-25 is a good example. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Maybe you'll say that with me. It's almost as true today, isn't it, as it was then. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. However, the text also tells us that Hannah's family was not living in the same kind of rebellion that was so common in the period of the judges. Instead, the scriptures say that Hannah's life was shaped by the law that God had given to Israel 400 years earlier at Mount Sinai. The text says, Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies in Shiloh. So this is the culture in which Hannah found herself to be infertile. The text also gives us a few more details that help us to better understand her situation. In 1 Samuel 1-2, Hannah is said, I think in the translation we read today, that she was one of his wives. But in the Hebrew it says that she was his first wife. And Penina was his second. This likely means that Elkanah took Penina as a second wife because Hannah could not bear children for him. And since Penina did bear children, the infertility was most certainly with Hannah. Now, Elkanah preferred Hannah, but Penina was fruitful and was multiplying, and this created a type of rivalry and tension between the women. In this way, Hannah is swimming in a very familiar biblical stream. Do you know this story is repeating itself, right? Can you think of some others that are the same? Abraham, who was the father of the Israelite nation, was married to a woman named Sarah, and Sarah too was infertile. And like Elkanah, Abraham took a second wife, a woman named Hagar, who gave birth to a son. And Hagar made life difficult for Sarah, and Sarah made life difficult for Hagar, eventually convincing Abraham to put Hagar out of her house and to send her and her son away. Abraham's grandson Jacob, too, whose name was changed to Israel. He's the father of the 12 tribal leaders of Israel. He married two women. Rachel, who spent the early days of their marriage without being able to conceive children, and Leah, who became pregnant quite easily. The tension between Rachel and Leah was similar to that between Sarah and Hagar and is similar to that as that between Hannah and Penina. So this is a very familiar stream. But even more, in this culture, in Abraham's day and still in Hannah's day, sons inherited the wealth and the property of the family and daughters did not. 
So by giving birth to a male heir, a woman guaranteed both the future of her family and in the case that her husband died before her, guaranteed that she herself would be cared for and allowed to live in her family home and on her family estate. Without a male heir, if her husband were to die, she would be a widow who was vulnerable to a takeover from her husband's male relatives or by neighboring men. How's the water? But Hannah was also swimming in a stream in which Sarah and Rachel, Jacob's wife, were not swimming. She was swimming in a, in a stream shaped by the covenant of Sinai. And that covenant was made centuries after the death of Sarah and after the death of Rachel. In that covenant, and this is important for us to grasp, God had promised that there would be no infertility in Israel if the people remained faithful to God. So in the case of Israel's faithfulness, God promised this. This is from the book of Deuteronomy. Blessed will be the children of your womb, the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your animals, the newborn of your herd, and the young of your flock. But in the case of Israel's unfaithfulness, God also promised, this is a few verses later, cursed will be the children of your womb, the produce of your ground, the newborn of your herd, and the offspring of your flock. So this is the stream in which Hannah is swimming. Not only was a male child seen as a guarantee of the family's future and as a guardian and protector of his mother, but in the covenant of Sinai, the very presence of infertility among the people was a sign of separation from God. Now, oftentimes, and we see this several times in the biblical text, it seems to have been common to assume that anyone who experienced this was being personally picked on by God. So Hannah herself might have been thought of as somehow impure before God. But that's not what the covenant of Sinai says. It spoke of these curses as communal, not individual. At the very least, Hannah was a reminder to her husband and to her community that all was not well in Israel. And we love to be good examples, right? But would you like to be a bad example? Would you like to be the one everybody looked at to test the temperature of the water and to find out it's not as it should be? I wouldn't want to be that. The text even goes so far as to say that it was the Lord who closed her womb. Now, next week, we'll discuss why these curses have begun to be poured out on the people of Israel at this time, and we'll see that the curses really have nothing to do with Hannah herself. But even so, she is the one in her family who was symptomatic of this curse. It was affecting her more than anyone else in her family. How's the water? All of this helps to explain Hannah's distress. This explains, at least partially, why Panina's taunts hit Hannah so hard, why she couldn't ignore them, and why her husband's somewhat pitiful attempts at encouraging her fell so flatly. From her perspective, she was a cursed woman living amongst a cursed people. So what was she to do? Well, Hannah's name means the compassion of Yahweh. It's hard to know if that was her name when these things happened or if she was given that name after her experiences with God. We're not sure because names are often changed after an experience with God. We see that through the scriptures. But in either case, her name is prophetic. Now, in Hannah's day, she could have turned to a number of places to deal with her infertility. At this time in Israel, the book of Judges tells us that there were many religions practiced among the people. 
And infertility is not uncommon in the ancient world. It happened quite a lot. And almost every religion practiced in Canaan had a cure for infertility. So Hannah could have gone to any of those cures. She could have tried a religious cure. She could have tried a medicinal cure. She could have tried any number of mystical cures for her infertility, but she didn't. In her distress, she turned to the God of Israel, to the very God that the text said closed her womb. As her name implies, Hannah pleaded with God for compassion, for mercy. Hannah pleaded with God to make her whole in her culture, to remove the stain of infertility from her and from her house. But her request is interesting. Remember that a son would have guaranteed the future of her name in the family, and a son would have cared for her in her old age, keeping her from poverty and vulnerability after her husband's death. Now, we might be tempted, I would be tempted, to think that Hannah wanted a son for these reasons, and that her desperation for a child was driven by her own sense of self-preservation. But if we thought that about Hannah, we would be wrong. She made a vow to the Lord, saying these words, Lord of armies, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your bondservant and remember me and not forget your bondservant, but will give your bondservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. In those verses, Hannah makes two promises to God. First, she promises that she would raise the child as a Nazarite. It has nothing to do with being Nazarene, in case you wondered, even though the alcohol thing is similar. In the covenant of Sinai, a Nazarite vow was a special vow of service to God, and usually it was just for a set period of time. It was not lifelong. The signs of the vow were that the people, while they were under the vow, would not drink wine or any fermented drink, they would not cut their hair, and they would not touch a dead body. All the details, if you want all of them, you can find them in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Usually these were temporary vows. However, Hannah pr promised to raise her son this way from birth, which is very similar to how God commanded Samson to be raised. And remember, they were very near neighbors. Secondly, Hannah promised God that she would not keep the child as her son, but she would give him entirely to the service of God. Now, as I said at the beginning of our discussion, history seems to show, if you study all the scriptural stories of this family, that Elkanah was a Levite who lived in the tribe of Ephraim. And if that's true, then his children would have had responsibilities at the tabernacle at certain set times, but their service would have been on a cycle with other Levites. What Hannah promised is that her son would serve God at the tabernacle all of his life. He would never leave. He would cease to be their son, and he would become entirely a servant of God. And in making that promise, Hannah was indicating that though she was willing to receive a blessing from God, even desperate to receive it, she was also willing to sacrifice most of the personal benefits that would have come with having a son. How's the water? Hannah was begging God to remove her reproach. She was begging God to open her womb. She was begging God to bless her family, but she was not asking for personal protection. If her child were given entirely to the service of the tabernacle, then she would have remained as vulnerable after he was born as she had been before. Hannah wanted to be made whole, 
but she did not ask to be made safe, nor did she ask to be made secure. Now, in the weeks to come, we'll explore the wider context of Israel at this time, along with God's response to Hannah's prayer. But today, I just want to reflect on this introduction to Hannah. By her example, I think Hannah has challenged us in several ways. First, even though Hannah's situation was tragic, and it was obviously unfair, she had done nothing to deserve this, and yet this curse had come upon her. But she did not use all of that as an excuse to act wickedly. She continued each year to accompany her family to worship God at the tabernacle. She did not let her bitterness lead to disobedience in this way. Now, she was far from joyful, especially as the years went on and her infertility continued. The text tells us that she was despondent, that she was given to crying, that she had lost her appetite. She was not in a good emotional state. But perhaps this is good news to some of you. There's no sin in any of that. It's not sinful to respond to tragedy with these kinds of feelings. Wickedness at this time would have been in refusing to go to the tabernacle or being cruel to her husband when he tried to encourage her or responding to Panina's abuse with abuse of her own. These would have been wickedness. But the text doesn't tell us that Hannah did any of those things. When we find ourselves in unfair circumstances or in seasons which are filled with despair and filled with sorrow, we might remember Hannah. She could not help but be sad and sorrowful. And I know I grew up in the church too. Some Christians will make you feel that if you're not smiling and rejoicing, that you have a lack of faith. But that's far from the truth. There's a joy that comes in tears and sadness. Hannah could not help but to be sad and sorrowful. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes has said that there is an appointed time for everything and there's a time for every matter under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The Apostle Paul reminded the Christians in Ephesus, that they were not to sin in their anger. Hannah might also encourage us not to sin in our grief. There's a godly way of grieving the injustices and the unfairness of our lives, and there are more ungodly ways of doing that. Ungodly grief leads us to vengeance, or to viciousness, or to unkindness, or to bitterness. Godly grief leads us to God. And that's where Hannah's grief led her. The second way that Hannah challenges us by her example is by bringing her grief not to people, but to God. Elkanah asked Hannah about her grief, right? He said, what's wrong? And that would have been a perfect opportunity for Hannah to complain about Panina. It's that wife you got me over here I got to deal with. She's abusive. She's terrible. Why did you do this to me? She could have attacked him, right? She might have done that. And who would have blamed her? But Hannah did not complain or blame. Hannah also could have rebuked her husband simply for choosing to marry a second wife because of her infertility. Imagine the insult that that must have been. 
But Hannah did not use that opportunity to complain either about Penina or about her husband, nor did she complain about the unfairness of the world or the wickedness she was experiencing in it. Hannah brought her grief to God. And even more, she didn't beg God for fairness. She didn't ask him to bring justice. She didn't ask him to treat Panina as she deserved. Hannah made no comparisons between herself and anyone else, nor did she make any complaints. Hannah simply appealed to the mercy and the compassion of God. She prayed that God would look on the affliction of your bondservant and remember me and not forget your bondservant. What a theologian Hannah was, especially given the time in which she lived. Few of us today living after the resurrection of Christ understand prayer so well. Hannah recognized that she was not owed God's grace, that there was nothing in the contract in bringing her to life that God promised to make her life a good one. Nor did she have a right to a certain kind of life or to a certain kind of experience. Hannah recognized that prayer is not a power over God or a demand that is made based on some legal basis. She understood that prayer is an appeal to God. Even more, Hannah also recognized that a prayer request is an appeal to God for mercy, not for a right. I don't deserve this, God, is not something she ever said. A prayer request is not a demand for justice, but is an appeal for mercy. And she also seems to have understood that if God chooses to answer her prayer, he'll do it out of compassion, not out of compulsion. In other words, Hannah knew that God did not have to give her what she wanted. She also knew that God's response was not going to be based on something inside of her. She's under no delusions that her sincerity or her desperation or her beliefs were going to affect God's decision. God's response would be based on who God is, and she knew he was a God of mercy. Hannah's prayer reminds me of one prayed a few decades later by King David. Hannah did not deserve her suffering. David most certainly did. But David thought something about God that Hannah also seems to have understood. This is Psalm 51, just the first verse. David wrote, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness. Be gracious to me according to my sincerity. Be gracious to me according to my earnestness. Be gracious to me according to my suffering. No. Be gracious to me according to your faithfulness. According to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. Like Hannah, David too recognized that prayer, when we pray it, is an appeal to the mercy and the compassion of God. Many today speak of prayer as a power. And many leaders today promise to teach us formulas to unlock the power of God and to move God to act. If you can write, get the right formula, God will do whatever you ask, whether the, fam the formula is faith or it's sincerity or it's obedience or it's fasting or it's some sort of self-sacrifice. Whatever it is, you can get him to act. Here, we'll unlock the power of prayer, right? But prayer is not a power to be exercised. Prayer is a relationship with God. And prayer requests are appeals to God's capacity for mercy and compassion on his people. And Hannah knew this. David knew this. 
And we might do well to remember that the reason the prayer of a righteous person, according to James, is powerful and effective is because a righteous person knows the God to whom they pray. And finally, Hannah's prayer was self-oriented. She was asking something for herself, as all prayer requests do, but it was not selfish. It was not self-focused. She prayed for something she wanted, but she made the request also at the same time self-sacrificial. The writer of the New Testament book of James has explained what's going on here really well. This is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you're envious and, can, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's a great summary, right, of Hannah's life. Panina is jealous of the love that Hannah's husband is giving her, and so she torments her, right? That's the source of the fighting, and Hannah is envious of the children Panina can have, and so she is in grief and despair. You don't have what you want, and that's what creates quarrels and strife. It's true, right? It was true in her life. It's true in ours. And you are envious and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. Hannah's whole story is pretty well summarized by James in these verses, including this final exhortation. James says that God cares about our motives when we pray. Hannah wanted a son for a number of reasons. Her infertility was a cause of suffering for her both in bearing the cultural shame of infertility and because of the abuse of Penina. She wanted that shame to be lifted. And in that way, her prayer was for herself. However, she also needed a son to guarantee her future security in her household. And the covenant of Sinai required children to obey and honor their parents. And if she had a godly child, that son would have cared for her all the days of her life and would have been a blessing to her in innumerable ways. But she was willing to sacrifice a great deal of that blessing. She offered to give her son to the Lord as a servant rather than to keep his service to herself along with the security that his presence would have afforded her. She asked God for the removal of her affliction, but only at the cost of her continuing in insecurity. What this reveals is that Hannah was not greedy in approaching God. She didn't come wanting all of her dreams to come true. She asked God for mercy, but she did not ask him to supply all her conceivable needs. Was Hannah perfect? No, of course not. Were there other ways to respond to the unfairness of her situation? I'm sure there were. Maybe you're thinking of some now. But still, I would say Hannah's response was godly. She did not repay evil for evil. She did not use her suffering as an excuse to become bitter and cruel. Instead, she brought her desperation to God. When she prayed, she did not demand that God give her whatever she wanted. Instead, she appealed to God simply for mercy. And she was willing to sacrifice her future security by return, returning a portion of the blessing a son would have provided her by committing her son not to serve her, not to serve her husband, 
but to be a servant of God alone all of his life. She released him completely from birth. Like Hannah, may we never use grief or injustice or unfairness as an excuse for wickedness. Like Hannah, may we approach God in prayer humbly, appealing to God for mercy, but always allowing God to be God when we pray. As Jesus taught us, may all our prayers truly desire God's will to be done on earth as it is in the heavens, even if God's will is not our will. And like Hannah, may we not seek God to remove all of our suffering and shame and insecurity. May we seek God's mercy and at the same time display a willingness to continue on an uncertain road if he wills it. Hannah did this, and we see it lived out in Jesus, don't we, when he prayed for another cup, another way in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet submitted to the will of God, which was his own death and suffering for us. Similar. How's the water? Is the water in which you are swimming unfair? Is it unjust? Have you been forced in your life to endure things that you did not choose, nor did you earn, but they were forced upon you by the circumstances of your life or by the people in it? Do not allow that water to pollute you. How we approach God in prayer can purify us. What we ask God for and what we do not ask him for can purify us. And how we respond to God's response to us can purify us as well. May we learn in some degree to swim as Hannah swam, whatever the stream in which we swim. Amen.